Welcome to the British Football and Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Dami Adewale, and in this series, I'll be speaking to individuals who were involved in the affiliations between football clubs and basketball clubs in Britain from the 1970s to the 2000s. As a sports journalist with a keen interest in football and basketball, this series covers the best of both worlds for me. My motivation to cover this topic stemmed from an interview I held with the founders of the National Basketball Heritage Centre, Jenny Collins and John Atkinson. John worked as a statistician for Crystal Palace Basketball in the 1970s and gave a brief explanation about the football and basketball collaborations in Britain. John's offer and reached out to various individuals from different clubs, including Crystal Palace, Portsmouth, Everton and Newcastle United. I held interviews with people in all types of roles, including youth player, senior team captain, player coach, head coach and head of sporting operations. The first episode is an introductory one, as the four interviewees and I talked about their history in British basketball. We also covered how the collaboration with their respective football and basketball teams came about. First up is Richard Rudd, who played for Crystal Palace in the 1970s and 1980s, primarily as a youth player with occasional call-ups to the first team. Richard played from the ages of 13 until 22 and was a part of numerous successful teams. Travelling the world and visiting places like Moscow, Tel Aviv and Boston provided numerous links for Crystal Palace and Richard himself, which is how he eventually ended up at Boston Celtics youth camp in the 1980s, learning the game from some of the best basketball players of all time. During his time at Crystal Palace, the team held annual awards for their youth players, including Best Hustler and Most Valuable Player. One of the prizes for winning an award was a trip to Boston in the US and an opportunity to be coached by some Boston Celtics players. Now, this was in the 1980s and if you're a basketball fan like me, you'll know just how big of a deal that was. My mum was a pastry chef and my dad was a sparky. 
yeah and they had to save up yeah for the airfare because mm. they the airfare was not included yeah so and i remember them sort of putting money aside yeah for me to go on this thing yeah and i remember walking up to the airport and being to the airport and it was like a you know, i was wearing a suit and tie to get on the airplane you know it was so unusual my parent no one had flown in my family or anything like that so um yeah so went off and the other end i was met by a group of people who run the, the camps but the main man was the center for the celtics a guy called dave cowens it's a left-handed six foot eight six foot nine monster of a man monster of a man and basically i became great friends with him and um he had he was great friends with all obviously the celtics who was a very good player at the time yeah he introduced me to sort of doug collins larry bird sam jones i met um a guy called washington who was a monster of a man who uh, I met um, Bill Bradley from the New York Knicks, um, who's a senator, you know, and things like that. So um, went there, did that, came back, went back the following year on the same deal. Yeah. Then I asked if I could come back the following year because um, I was going to St. Mary's. Yeah. Um, and they gave me a job as a counsellor on the camps which i did for three years with a couple of guys from st mary's um, and played basketball all the time there so basically i was a counselor but i was just playing basketball you know three meals a day lovely weather outside courts absolutely yeah so that's how i got to know boston there's an undoubted high level of status amongst the name richard just mentioned Dave Cowens, Larry Bird and Sam Jones were all in the NBA Hall of Fame and Doug Collins was a great player and coach who, most famously, was Michael Jordan's first and last coach in the NBA. Moving on to the Crystal Palace collaboration, the basketball club started as a result of British football teams trying to become more expensive with their commercial ventures. Yeah, it was when I was a junior for Crystal Palace, um, about 1974. There was a big TV input into basketball, uh, Channel 4. And at that time, football was looking for extra revenue and different ways of generating merchandising, though it was at its infancy. Um, and uh, a lot of the football clubs came together, like Man United, Crystal Palace, Aston Villa, Leicester, lots of teams. And they all started basketball teams. Yeah. But they weren't coordinated and they were like um, an add-on, very much an add-on. And I remember going um, to an award ceremony at Crystal Palace Football Club in the, about 1975. And... Um, they were, their manager was quite um, high profile and the uh, ownership of Crystal Palace had just been taken over by Ron Nodes. And there was Terry Venables, who was the player and then the manager um, after this person, I can't remember his name. And basically the football club was in uh, turmoil. Yeah. And the basketball club was full of 
Americans. Yeah. So, and the owners of the basketball club didn't really like football. So there was a, a clash of cultures straight away between what basketball was and what soccer was. Yeah. And it only lasted for, I would say, less than two years, the association between the football club and the basketball club. And like everything, it, it fell apart because of finances. Next, we have Dan Lloyd. Dan is of American heritage and briefly played basketball across the pond in his youth. Shortly after graduating from university, an opportunity presented itself for Dan to play basketball in England. Having an English father made the transition simple and Dan soon found himself playing pro basketball in Doncaster in 1978. Another benefit of having an English father was the chance to obtain a British passport. Once that was sorted, Dan started playing for Team GB in 1979. In 1980, he moved to Crystal Palace for a few years and then Manchester before ending up at Portsmouth in 1985 for his last three years as a full-time pro. Dan tells me how former Portsmouth Football Club chairman John Deacon created the collaboration with the basketball team. I don't know the reason behind it, but uh, John Deacon was the chairman of Portsmouth Football Club. And uh, I don't know how long he'd been the chairman there, but uh, uh, for whatever reason, because you know basketball was getting a higher profile, uh, he perhaps he looked at it as an opportunity to okay, let's expand. It's this you know get a get into basketball. I, and I don't know what drove him to do that, but he bought a club uh, from Telford. There, I just read the Telford Turbos, and they were bottom team in the uh in the league um really didn't look like they had much of an opportunity to go go anywhere so you know the the opportunity came along for him to to buy a club buy a franchise and move it to uh <clears throat> eventually moved it to to portsmouth um and uh where i think they, they finished the bottom of the league and uh uh that was 80 i think 84 85 and so uh, it looks like Danny Palmer, who coached at Crystal Palace back in early 80s, so he uh, played under Danny there. He took over as head coach. John Deacon brought him in to coach the team the following year. And uh, so Danny asked me at the time I was playing at Manchester, and I said, look, do you want to come down to Portsmouth, play here at the Portsmouth Basketball Club? Let's move on to Tony Garbellotto now. Tony is a basketball coach with over 30 years of experience. He got into basketball at a young age and began his coaching career when he was relatively young as well. Tony started off as an assistant coach for the London Towers, who were one of the most successful basketball teams in England during the 1990s. After his time in London, Tony had plans to become a junior developmental coach, but the opportunity to become a professional head coach came along overseas. His career took him to Iceland before coming back to Newcastle, then Birmingham until the topic of this episode emerged, his coaching tenure with the Everton Tigers. Tony explains the reasoning behind Everton Football Club's decision to start an affiliation with a basketball team while mentioning the key people involved. 
Well, um, you know, it's uh, just to give uh, like a chronological order. And I believe that I want to say this would have been because I was there 2008. So I think 2006, um, uh, Henry Mooney, who was, you know, someone within the the Liverpool community um, who everyone knows um, was was basically, you know, a catalyst for young people on basketball. And uh, he was working for Everton in the community, um, doing a, a variety of bits and pieces um, uh, with his um, outreach work. Um, and he met um, at that moment, who was the person that was in charge, was a chief executive of Everton in the community, was a guy by the name of Gary Townsend, a very dynamic young, uh, uh, young chief executive. Um, and, you know, Everton at that time, and I'm giving you a little bit of paraphrasing here because, you know, the, the, that part of the story is probably not something that I should be, should be telling in, in detail. It's really Henry's story. And there are a couple other people, key people in at that time. Um, basically, um, Everton as a football club wanted and needed to expand their outreach program. And they saw that there was a real need to get to young people um, in in the in the Liverpool community, um, and Gary was was taken aback by what Henry was doing and how they were doing it and the amount of children that they were getting to. So, um, as a professional football club, I think Gary went to um, to the chief executive at that time, which. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you, his name, I think it was Keith Williams. I'm, I've got to admit, the, the, whoever the chief executive was at that time at the football club, they met, they met as a board. And um, so they started talking and, uh, you know, Henry was like, look, you know, um, if we're really going to do this, you know, we should have something that, that, that is at the pinnacle because, you know, this is a premiership football club. Um, and, you know, I think that there's a real chance of establishing a professional basketball team here. To round off the first episode, we'll hear from Ken Nottage. Ken gravitated to basketball during his school days and became a junior player at none other than Crystal Palace. He had his head turned when the second best team in the country, Embassy Milton Keynes, promised him the opportunity to play significant minutes as a senior pro. As a 17-year-old, this was a no-brainer for Ken, despite how upset Crystal Palace were with his decision. Ken was an embassy player for two years before the team unfortunately folded. His journey took him to Guildford for two years as a starter. Then, a friend of his who played for Sunderland, the national champions at the time, told Ken that the team wanted him. He was still relatively young, but he moved up to the northeast to pursue an engineering degree and a basketball career with Sunderland. Ironically, Candace on the series to talk about Sunderland's biggest rivals, Newcastle United. He spoke to me about the forming of Newcastle United Sporting Club in the 1990s and how he got his role. Yeah, really, really interesting because um, in Sunderland, there was a, a, a very large leisure centre called Crowtree Leisure Centre. And it used to, it was the biggest in the country, it used to attract 2 million people a year. And one of the sports was, this is when I came up to North East, the basketball club was based there. 
We used to get 15, 1,600 people a game into the, the big sports hall. And that was the most you could get in, really. You, you know, there was always a, a waiting list. And when things didn't go quite so well uh, for the club and financially, um, uh, another uh, arena was being built. Newcastle Arena was being bought, built in the northeast. And what happened was that, that um, the club... Uh, actually moved there, had an opportunity to move to that arena. And so it did actually go and play there. And I played a season or two there and it was good fun. You know, you've got this super arena capable of 10,000 people. We didn't get 10,000 at that point. And um, after a few years, um, uh, the, the club was actually bought out by Newcastle United. And what Newcastle United were doing is that they were putting together this sporting club model where you had at the top, you had uh, the football club, which was the commercial giant, you know, loads of sponsors, hospitality boxes, 36,000 people a game, a waiting list of 10,000 for season tickets. So this was the main driver and sat underneath that, you'd have these secondary sports. I call them secondary sports because they were secondary to the football. So you'd have rugby, and at the time they they had bought a local local rugby club, and then suddenly started buying in the big players. Rob Andrew, who was an England superstar, was brought in to run that um, that ice hockey, and they had a, an ice hockey a Canadian ice hockey superstar to run that for them. And at the time, I was asked to come in, and uh, they bought the basketball club, and I was asked to come in and run that. Well, I decided that. You know, I thought I'm going to do this. I just fancy doing this. And on my first day in the job, they said to me, Ken, we need to see you in the boardroom at nine o'clock tomorrow morning sharp. I thought, oh, dear, something's gone wrong. Something's gone wrong. I've just given up a great job to come across here and something's gone wrong. And I went into the boardroom and they said, right. Um, we've made some changes and we'd like you to run all of our sports for us. And uh, I, I remember saying to them, you know, what makes you think I can do that job? And they, they said, you know, you'll be okay. And we'd like you to do it. And that's it for episode one. Thank you for listening. In episode two, we'll cover interesting facts about the football and basketball affiliations, ranging from sponsorship deals to fan interactions and rivalries.